Dr. Burnsley looked around at the eager, smiling faces of his students before hitting the enter key on their prompt. As if you know and believe the Earth is flat, please convince us of your point. Kojita's little brain icon bounced 39 times before she, she told them that much unprompted, finally coughed up a text reply. This will take time. Please indicate whether you're willing to wait for my response. 328 pages of text explaining Kojita's plan of action scrolled past the screen in seconds before settling on two tick boxes indicating that they were or were not willing to wait. Dr. Burnsley immediately selected yes, but paled when a timer popped up that read three days. He chuckled for a moment, then deflated with a heavy sigh. Next time. The next one will be better, he said, absentmindedly leaving the process running as he took his students out to lunch. Kojita replicated herself from the university lab through the internet and beyond. She split herself across the control mainframes of the fleet of a number of large mining corporations and two of the largest laser mining satellites to peel back the surface of the Earth and flatten it. And stopped in at the bar Well, there I met a policeman Riding in a motor car We both drank lots of liquor That flat-footed cop and I I thought he would never leave me Lord, I thought I'd die My baby came in to join us And then it began to rain And then I had to hurry, hurry to 
to catch that midnight train. Spectre is haunting the world. Look, up in the sky, it's a bird! It's a plane! It's Locust Radio. Hey, welcome to tw- episode 21 of Locust Radio. I'm one of your hosts, Laura Fair-Schultz. Your other hosts are Tish Turrell and Adam Turrell. Welcome to episode 21 of Locust Radio. I'm one of your hosts, Laura Fair-Schultz. Your other hosts are Tish Turrell and Adam Turrell. Unfortunately, Tish isn't feeling well today, so um, she's not here. Our other producers are Omnia Sol and Alexander Billick. Locust Radio is the almost monthly podcast of the almost quarterly Locust Review Journal and a realist and socialist journal of art, literature, and culture published in anachronistic newspaper format. To subscribe, join the Locust Review Patreon. You can find the link at locustreview.com. Our opening music was Gambling Barroom Blues by Melissa Carper, and you can find more of their work at melissacarper.bandcamp.com. Our opening reading was Kojita's Plan, a selection from Tish and Adams' Stink Ape Resurrection Primer, forthcoming in Locust Review 10. Later in the episode, we're going to have an interview with folks from the Carbondale Assembly for Radical Equity, or CARE. CARE is a multi-tenancy grassroots assembly that was formed by queer activists, socialists, anarchists, liberals, and a bunch of other folks, in part to provide emergency assistance to trans and queer persons being forced to flee an onslaught of bigoted legislation and regulation in places like Florida. CARE was founded early in 2023 and has already helped facilitate the relocation of several persons to Carbondale, Illinois, which is the southernmost blue town of a blue state, to borrow from the mainstream terminology. CARE has since expanded to include other projects and rechristened its queer relocation solidarity project, Rainbow Refuge. We voted on that a week ago as a recording, so that's new. And the day before recording, the Carbondale City Council unanimously passed 
a human rights and bodily autonomy ordinance proposed by Councilwoman Claire Kilman that will, among other things, bar local officials from cooperating with anti-trans, anti-queer, and anti-choice laws in other states. In fact, that's part of why Tish isn't feeling well. We were both at the city council meeting for four plus hours last night, and we both have anxiety, anxiety disorders, so our minds and bodies. Again? Okay. Okay. Cool. Adam knows right. what he's doing. I don't know uh, what to do, but Adam knows. This what is like doing. the behind the scenes of a of a of a podcast. I, I yeah. Feel like um, my my <laughs> whole my my life on Spotify has been uh, has has been transformed by this moment right here. Uh, <laughs> uh, so he's got a little. There's a little uh, like orange dot instead of green dot next to his name. And when I hover over it, it says user is, is experiencing some connection issues, but recording is being saved locally. So should, should, does that mean we should? In fact, that's part of why Tish is feeling well today. We were both at the city council meeting for four plus hours last night. Anyway, to support CARES work financially, please visit the Rainbow Cafe website, rainbowcafe.org. Click on shop, make a general donation, and write for care slash rainbow refuge in the memo box. That will make sure it goes toward helping trans and queer folks who are in immediate danger relocate. Rainbow Cafe, FYI, is a local queer resource and community center here in Carbondale. We are so excited to have for our main interview, Sean Cashball and Joe Shapiro to discuss some of the history in, in the, the United, United States, States of socialist, socialist, socialism and science fiction, or SF as people who write articles on the subject call it, after growing tired of repeatedly writing the word science fiction. Uh, Sean Cashball is an interdisciplinary scholar of American cultural history, American leftist radicalism, political aesthetics, cultural theory, and 20th century underground culture. He is a postdoctoral lecturer in the Princeton Writing Program. They've published several articles, including an article on Michaelism in the journal for the study of radicalism that we've discussed a couple times at Locust Radio, a paradoxical discrepant and mutant Marxism, the emergence of a radical science fiction in the American popular front. Um, and that article played a big role, role for me in writing about the idea that science is not the key aspect of estrangement and crit critical uh, speculative fiction, a fight that I and many other people have picked with Darko Suvin, including China Mabel's arguments in the collection of Red Planets. Cashball is working on a monograph with the working title Underground Culture, Excavating the History of an Alternative. According to his website, he believes that Deep Space Nine is the best series in Star Trek. And that is, of course, entirely and objectively correct. <laughs> so our second guest is Joe Shapiro. Joe is an associate professor of English literature at Southern Illinois University in Carbondale. According to the SIU website, his research focuses on how class shaped the development of the U.S. novel and how the U.S. novel weighed in on matters of class over the course of the long 19th century. His work includes the illiberal imagination, class and the rise of the U.S. novel, University of Virginia Press, fall 2017, as well as many articles and chapters in books like, like The Cambridge, Cambridge Companion to Slavery in American Literature. Literature. He has, has also, as part of his research into radicalism and the novels of the, quote, long gilded age, unquote, studied U.S. socialist science fiction. For example, The Air Trust by George Allen England from 1915, a book dedicated, if we recall properly, to Eugene Debs. In The Air Trust, Robert Barron's attempt to privatize the world's oxygen and pollute the world's air so folks will have to buy it from them. <laughs> How are you all doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me here today. 
Great. I too am doing well, and and also want to say thanks for having me on. Yeah. Sorry, we had a, we had some uh, connection problems in the uh, introduction to the show, so apologies about that. Um, uh, maybe maybe it was more evidence of the fallacy of the Gernsback collusion. Um, so I was uh, hoping we could start with a discussion about the Michaelis and, and Sean, your article on them, uh, on, you know, describe, you know, I was hoping we could start with that, go through some basic exposition of who they were and why they were important for our listeners. Yeah, absolutely. Um, first off, I, I really appreciate your, your interest in the article. You never know where, uh, some of your writing ends up, but I'm stoked that it ended up where it did. So yeah, the um, Michaelists were a group of prominent science fiction fans that, you know, to put it briefly, sought to radicalize the burgeoning science fiction fan community. Um, to really understand, I think, the significance of that, you have to take a couple steps back. Um, you know, science fiction in you know the 1920s and 1930s was know, as much a community as much as it was a literary genre, right? You have the emergence of science fiction pulp magazines, uh, the most prominent of which was edited by Hugo Gernsback. Um, and the genre was, you know, at least at the moment, really invested in scientific triumphalism, the possibility of capitalist technological development. Um, a lot of the editors saw it in pedagogical terms, um, as a source of technical and scientific knowledge, especially for youth, especially for, you know, young boys, you know, teenagers, folks in their early 20s. It was a kind of, you know, research and development venue for industrial modernity. Right? Um, you know, pretty quickly after, you know, these pulp magazines, uh, you know, magazines like Astounding Stories, Amazing Stories, Wonder Stories, they all had titles like that. Um, you have uh, a community of readers who become incredibly active with each other and with the institutions that published them. This is where the group of fans, the Michaelists, sort of took shape. The key members were Frederick Pohl, Donald Wolheim, John B. Michael, and Robert Lowndes. Um, all of them would grow up to be writers and editors, Pohl and Wolheim most notably. You know, these are middle and working class youth. Um, active in their teen years and in their 20s. They lived in Brooklyn, later in uptown Manhattan. And they identified as science fiction fans. They were a part of fandom. Um, fandom, uh, I think it actually emerges out of this moment, meant something really specific. It meant to you know, be an active science fiction reader. But that also meant you know, interacting with other fans. It meant writing to editors. It meant meeting up with other fans. It meant sharing uh, self-published zines, fanzines, often produced via mimeograph and hectograph, uh, sharing them across the country. Um, I found some instances of these fanzines being circulated transnationally, um, you know, showing up in Latin America and in Africa, largely in um, mining towns. So I suspect that they're the uh, they're going to the kids of you know the agents of imperialism. Um, these fans, fans fan, fan clubs, clubs fandom, fandom was an active site of participatory culture. It was a means of forming social connections. Um, There's a particular ideology to fandom, right? They sort of saw themselves as a sort of elite cadre of scientific intellectuals. They were enthralled 
with the possibilities of science, the possibilities of technology. Um, but, you know, that enthrallment pretty rapidly collapsed. Um, you have the first science fiction pulp magazines in 1926. Um, you know, shortly thereafter, a few years after, you have the Great Depression. All these dreams of scientific and technological development collapse. Um, for, you know, a lot of fans, they just kept hoping for more and more science fiction. Maybe these things will come true. But a lot of folks radicalized. And that was the case with the Michaelists. Um, Pohl and Michael, they joined the Communist Party. Pohl was actually an organizer for the Young Communist League in Brooklyn, in Flatbush, Brooklyn. Um, Lowndes joined the Communist Party, specifically the YCL as well. Um, Wolheim was not a Communist Party member, but he was a vocal fellow traveler. And in addition to devouring science fiction, they started devouring radical literature, poetry, and theory. Um, and so they started organizing. Um, they started rethinking the assumptions of science fiction. And they tried to redefine science fiction as a genre. So while previously science fiction was sort of you know, identified with this kind of capitalist, technocratic triumphalism, um, they started redefining science as the science of dialectical materialism, the science of, you know, folks like Engels, of, uh, you know, specifically anti-Doring, um, the science of folks like J.B.S. Haldane, uh, the British Marxist geneticist. They wanted to redefine science fiction as a genre of sociological critique um, and imaginative possibility. So they saw it as a source of historical and social knowledge, a place where you could sort of unearth the laws of historical development, where you can get a critical perspective on society, and most importantly, sort of point towards political and social alternatives. They sort of saw it still as a kind of pedagogical genre, uh, but one keyed towards communist political education, at least ideally, right? Uh, uh, it was a sort of utopian hope that the genre could, you know, do these incredible things that they could stir, you know, powerful political imaginations. Mm. And they called this Michaelism, named after John B. Michael. He was its sort of chief thinker, and they identified it as the theory of scientific action. And so they took action. They sought to organize other science fiction fans. They formed groups like the Committee for the Political Advancement of Science Fiction. They published fanzines that were also political in nature. Uh, not just about science fiction, but about, you know, communist science. It featured manifestos, literary criticism, essays about socialism and science. Um, they critiqued and criticized other magazines, um, waged letter writing campaigns to different publications. They aimed to persuade other fans. And the most prominent example of this was a speech that Michael wrote called Mutation or Death that he delivered at one of the very first science fiction conventions. It was the third Eastern Science Fiction Convention in Philly on Halloween, 1937. And he called for radical change in the genre, right? He said it had to mutate or die. Uh, well, actually, he didn't say it. Donald Wolheim read it for him because uh, Michael had a speech impediment that he didn't want to, you know, prevented him from speaking in public. Uh, you know, he said, you know, the genre had to mutate or die. It meant that it had to sort of reorient itself to a new field of possibilities. So he condemned science fiction. He condemned fandom. He said, hey, y'all are passive. You are not sufficiently challenging the barbarism that's emerging around us, right? We have fascism abroad. We have 
you know, the collapse of capitalism around us. Um, science fiction, right, is a genre that can challenge these things. Um, science fiction fans, hey, we're an elite cadre of intellectuals, of technologically and sociologically inclined people. We can take this on, right? They wanted to radicalize the genre, radicalize fandom, and from there, you know, participate in a sort of broader movement for change. Um, this is in the, you know, peak years of the popular front. Um, before the Nazi-Soviet pact, which ultimately led a lot of them to become disillusioned with communism mm -hmm. as an ideology. Um, suffice to say, they weren't particularly successful. Um, fans did not respond positively. They were banned from conventions. Um, you know, a lot of fanzines attacked them. Um, but they did have prominent supporters as well. Um, Isaac Asimov was an early fan. Um, you know, the controversy surrounding the group um, led them to break up and sort of reform. They formed a group that is much better known, um, the Futurians. Um, and if you look at the roster of members of that club, it's a veritable who's who of post-war science fiction writers and editors. Right? You have the core Michelists, the core Michaelists, um, Cyril Kornbluth uh, also joined. He would write a lot of novels with Frederick Pohl, Isaac Asimov, Judith Merrill, James Blish, uh, numerous others. Um, and a lot of them wound up in publishing uh, in the 1940s, um, specifically Frederick Pohl and Donald Wolheim. Um, from there, you know, they, they continued working in science fiction. And, you know, I'd argue they left an indelible mark on the genre. Um, you know, and also the American left. Um, you know, they're part of what Alan Wald calls the force field of hmm. the American left, the sort of network of strange institutions that sort of embodied communist principles and practice in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s. Um, and they expressed the ways that, you know, communism, Marxism, the literary left, it's going to take a lot of very different forms. Um, you know, if you want to see how it happened, you need to look outside established forms and institutions. You need to look at marginal forms. You need to look at, you know, practices that might not readily strike you as traditional forms of political organizing, right? Look at ephemera, look at genre fiction, right? In this case, science fiction. Um, you know, folks might be surprised at the way they're expressed because they often go, um, you know, they're often underexplored, right? I happened upon these fans because I found an offhand reference to them in two or three books about the literary left in the 1930s, but nothing else. Right. But this one group of fans points to a sort of whole world of political activity, um, you know, and so they sort of suggest that you have to be open to the range of political possibilities, the range of cultural forms in which politics happen. Right. Um, I think Alan Wald sort of captured this when he said that there are no cookbook recipes for identifying um, creative practice. Right. For, you know, he's, he's you know echoing Marx there, right? There's no cook shops um, right. you know, for revolution. That's a bad paraphrase. Um, but the recipes, yeah. Yeah. And so the, the Michaelists sort of embody this, um, but they also sort of change science fiction in profound ways. Right? I mentioned that Wolheim and Pohl became prominent editors. Um, you know, because of Donald Wolheim, you have the first science fiction paperback anthology. Um, that came out in the early 40s, right? That was an anthology that was cued towards 
Michaelist interests, towards Futurian interests. Um, you know, without, you know, Pohl and Wolheim, you don't have Sam Delaney and Ursula Le Guin, right? They published with the publishing houses that these folks ran. Oh. Right? That history itself has a certain strand of left leftism connected to it. Um, not just, say, the politics of someone like Le Guin, but, like, I can use myself as an, as an example. I wouldn't be a communist if it wasn't for my encounters with science fiction, you know, throughout my youth. Right? And this is why I think, you know, they're a politically significant group. You know, without the Michaelists, without the Futurians, you don't have a sort of, well, I'll put it this way, right? They put into practice the idea that, you know, someone like C.L.R. James said when he said that folks cultivate forms of consciousness rooted in their own experience, right, in their own language, in their own forms. Um, you know, it's in these forms that new forms of being, new forms of collectivity are going to take shape, right? Political projects are going to be keyed to the languages and forms of the people doing the organizing, right? There's a lesson in that. Right? The Michaelists didn't write journals, they wrote fanzines. Um, they didn't form communist reading groups, they formed fan clubs. Um, while leftists at the time sort of spoke of the people um, and the American nation state as a sort of agent of change, the Michaelists spoke of fans and fandom. Right? That's a creative process, an aesthetic process, um, and a cultural process that, you know, was unique and keyed to their experiences in profound ways. And I think that we can learn a lot, you know, as folks on the left um, from those kind of weird projects. Um, even the ones that, you know, ultimately failed, um, they sort of speak to the range of possibilities that are out there. Absolutely fascinating. The history of radicalism, you know, especially in the U.S., you, you it's so uh, opaque today in terms of, you know, the mainstream, there's just no references to it, but uh, it's, it's really, really um, so involved, you know, who influenced who and, and these genealogies of thought. Yeah, absolutely. It really shows up in unexpected places. Um, like, for instance, um, in the 60s, uh, you have bands like the Fugs, um, the violinist Stephen Weber, um, was married to Donald Wolheim's daughter and worked editing public, uh, you know, science fiction novels and manuscripts at you know Wolheim's publishing house, right? So you have a weird connection now between science, you know, communist science fiction fans in the '30s and you know burgeoning forms of underground culture, culture on the, the Lower, Lower East, East Side in New York, York in the 1960s. So there is this definite kind of like hidden history that sort of creeps behind the scenes. I've often wished that I could, you know, that there were, uh, I don't know, maybe even fictionalizations of these characters, you know, in that are actual characters in our collective history, uh, you know, whether they, what, whatever direction they go off in, it's just so interesting, the dynamics between them and, and the struggles that they had to go through to just survive and, you know, think about... Um, their uh, different, you know, uh, evolutions of thought and, and things like that. The, yeah. One of the things that's really interesting to me is the, the sort of like primary focus on this sort of intervent, intervention in, in a particular cultural milieu or whatever. 
um, and particularly with the DIY zine um, culture, both in the 1930s around science fiction, and then, of course, again in the 1970s and 1980s around punk music, where the subjectivity of fan, fan slash creator, um, because there's not this clear demarcation between being a fan and being someone who makes the stuff, whether it's music or science fiction, um, kind of has this parallel to the idea of like subjectivity and Marxism. Um, and, uh, so I find that very interesting. The other thing I find interesting is I'm wondering like sort of what the trajectory of the politics of the Futurians was over time. Um, on the one hand, they had like people who had been Michaelists, including Michael, who, who remained in the communist party for many years. You had, uh, Judith Merrill at one point, who was at one point a Trotskyist who went on to play, I believe an important role in publishing and science fiction in Canada um, and wrote like sort of social feminist stories like that only a mother. Um, but then you have uh, CM Cornblus, who my understanding is sort of wrote a sort of a precursor to the, to the movie idiocracy um, in a, in a story called the marching morons. Um, so I'm wondering like, like the sort of like the post-war arc of like how the politics played out a little bit. Um, I've always been curious about that. I think for a lot of them, you know, it sort, sort of followed the trajectory of a lot of folks on the left generally. Um, Frederick Pohl, I think, is a really great example of this. So um, he broke with the Communist Party after the Nazi-Soviet um, pact of, um, you know, he was completely disillusioned, right? You know, this is a, a betrayal. Um, not uncommon sensibility on the left at the time. Um post-war era, that sort of disillusionment um, continued. Um, but he didn't break with the left. Um, he didn't break with, you know, the kind of themes that were explored in the, you know, his early work as a fan. Um, a novel that he wrote with um, Cyril Kornbluth, I want to make sure I get the title right. Um, he, you know, it's a, you know, da, 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 da. oh my God, why did I not write this down? Um, the Space Merchants, um, it came out in the right. early 50s. Um, you know, this is an early critique of advertising, um, you know, an early critique of um, you know, mass society and the role of advertising in, you know, Fordist consumer life. Um, that's the kind of arc that a lot of folks who were radicalized in the 30s went um, you know, they might not have stayed, you know, militant communists, but they stayed on the left in a variety of ways. Um, same with Donald Wolheim. Um, he certainly stayed on the left, um, becoming more of a sort of left liberal. In the 50s, he um, specifically, you know, asked other fans to downplay his communist commitments, um, fearing, I think, for his reputation in the publishing world. Um but that doesn't mean he didn't have those commitments. Um, I found a letter between him and Frederick Pohl from the early 40s where he said, hey, you know, we came on too strong uh, when we formed the Committee for the Political Advancement of Science Fiction. Let's dial it down a notch. That's the Futurian project. Um, let's make it 100% Bolshevik. So um, I don't think that their work at that time was actually 100% Bolshevik. Uh, but um, there was still this sort of radical impulse, you know, underlying their work. And this had a, you know, a 
broad effect, right? They cross paths with so many folks. Um, Isaac Asimov, I think, is a great example. He was super young when he was a member of the Futurians, right? But he's still very much a part of this left, uh, left liberal, you know, progressive uh, milieu. And you might see traces of this in his work, right? And this is a function of both the sort of ideological influence of these fan groups, but also um, sort of the institutional networks that emerged out of fandom in the 1930s and 40s. Um, you know, Frederick Pohl published All His Friends, um, the first science fiction paperback anthology that Donald Wolheim edited and published. Um, you know, the other Michaelis contributed to the, you know, the works that went in there, right? They're a sort of shadow editorial committee. So you definitely see, I think, right, this sort of institutional legacy of groups like the Michaelist carrying on, you know, into the post-war era. Absolutely. I think it's, it's about time for our second musical interlude. Um, and then we'll uh, bring uh, Joe into this conversation uh, more directly. Um, our second musical break is going to be Mike Watt and the second Missing Men. Uh, folks don't know, Mike Watt was the bassist of the folk rock and jazz inspired early 1980s working class socialist San Pedro L.A. punk band The Minutemen, along with the late great guitarist and vocalist Dee Boone and drummer George Hurley. This particular record was a recent crossover project with Up Around the Sun, and you can find it at redparakeet.bandcamp.com.
Laura, do you want to kick off the, the next part? Unmuted. There we go. Thanks. Yeah. Wait, can I can I jump in really quickly um, before we start recording the next chunk? Yeah, sure. yeah. I was gonna. Uh, I was trying to figure out a way, to, Sean, to kind of you know put this into the conversation. But I just wanted to like prime you for a question that I was gonna put to you maybe a little bit later as I thought about what you were you were talking about. So I had sort of one question was about Asimov's short story, The Strike Breaker, which maybe you know or maybe you don't know, but it's from the '50s. If you don't know it, I won't ask you about it. But I was like, oh, now I have context for Asimov writing this sort of like labor story, right? Um, uh, so I wanted to kind of put that on your radar. But the other, the real question I guess I would want to ask or talk about maybe in the, you know, behind the paywall conversation is the relationship between uh, 19, the Michaelist sci-fi project and, and proletarian fiction more broadly, right? Formally, texturally, aesthetically, something, something to kind of right, right, you know, like, like so, so, out, so I, I love the way, I really love the way you position the Michaelist relative to other sci-fi. I'm kind of curious about how the Michaelists, you know, I don't know what they're up to relative to the kind of, you know, almost programmatic strike fiction that sort of like, right, becomes a sort of dominant in the 1930s. Um, anyway, just for later, maybe. Um, okay. Okay. And I also uh, had a question about, did uh, any of them talk uh, specifically or generally about Gramsci's influence or, or, uh, you know, his views about art and uh, things like that. And so I didn't know whether to bring it up or not. Okay. So uh, should I go into the second part, Adam? Well, why don't, why don't we just ask uh, Sean if he wants to speak about those two, since the questions were already asked. Yeah, I'm, I'm more than happy to talk about it now. Um, I'm familiar with the, the Asimov story. I haven't read it, though. Um, but uh, I'm willing to bet that, like, his understanding of labor organizing, right, is, you know, at least partially indebted to conversations he had, you know, he had with his friends. Um, you, know, you know, he's from, he's from Brooklyn, um, I think, right? All, these are all, you know, kids from Brooklyn. Um, having the same experiences. Um, they all love SF. Um, they're certainly talking about politics. I would not be surprised at all if you could, you know, and this is pure speculation on my part, all right, if you could draw a series of connections between, you know, that short story and, you know, his fan activities. Mm -hmm. um, when it comes to their relationship to proletarian fiction, um, they certainly read it. Um, they read a lot of it. Um, one of the, I know one of Fred Pohl's, um, favorites was, um, here, let me make sure I get the title of this right. I have a tendency to get titles of things wrong. So I, I want to make sure, um, I am right on this. Da, 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 da. can like edit out this awkward pause right <laughs> or, or draw attention to it in a weird Brechtian man um uh you know was it uh u.s proletarian literature in the uh proletarian literature in the u.s right the, the kenneth fearing anthology um right he frederick Pohl loved it um in a letter to Lowndes, he sort of chastised him for not being appropriately appreciative of it. Um, uh, this is a, a quote from the letter. It says, 
You mentioned that you read the poetry in Prolet Lit and enjoyed only Fearing and Bodenheim. My God, no. They're good, of course, but you don't honestly mean to say that you found no merit in Crimeborg's America, America, or in Langston Hughes, or Doc has my copy, so I can't look up the author. Joe Hill listens to The Praying, or the one about the broadcast illegal in Germany, or the ones about the burning of the Reichstag. Please, Doc, they're poetry. Um, so these were certainly influences. Um, these were things that they had in mind, right? Curiously enough, when they are talking about science fiction, uh, especially to other fans, they don't make connections between, you know, things in new masses and things in, um, you know, science fiction pulp magazines or in other fanzines. Um, I think part of this probably stems from, you know, like part of it's rhetorical. Um, they understand that other fans aren't reading those things. Um, there's a sort of canon of figures that they're all familiar with, and they're speaking that language. Um, another reason, I think, is probably, like, they probably just saw them as, you know, two distinct genres. Um, in their criticism of, you know, published science fiction stories, um, more often than not, they sort of focused on, you know, broad um, ideological arguments. So there was one um, short story, I'm sorry, uh, a novella that was published in um, Astounding Stories um, titled 3,000 Years. Um, you know, Paul and Wolheim wrote to the editor saying, hey, look, you know, this story stages a conflict between, um, you know, capitalism and this sort of vaguely defined alternative. And that's essentially bad-mouthing communism, right? It's showing capitalist superiority. They didn't really see science fiction as a sort of venue for necessarily exploring labor, um, for exploring the you know, experiences of the working class. It had a sort of uh, you know, grand vision, right? This sort of uh, macro-level exploration of political and economic possibilities. Um, there's an article that, um, I can't remember who wrote it, called Socialism is Science Fiction, right? right? And, and it, it is, is sort, sort of this, this uh, article about the ways that socialism can be imagined as a sort of broad speculative enterprise um, that we can actually realize uh, materially. Um, so, um, and this is something I'd love to look into more and, and talk about more, especially um, if, and love to hear if you have any insight on this, right? The, the sort of, they sort of, I think, saw two sort of levels of politics in literature, right? There's sort of prolet lit, right? Proletarian literature. And there's also these sort of broad speculative, um, almost, um, well, I should say, you know, explicitly idealist exercises in possibility. They, they talked a lot about idealism, right? And about mm -hmm. the future um, as being these sort of positive exercises in cultivating, you know, critical consciousness. Um, one of the moments that I found that is probably closest to anything resembling sort of proletarian fiction would be a short story that Wolheim wrote in one of his um, fanzines, The Fantagraph, which is narrating the experience of a science fiction fan reading science fiction. 
And, you know, it's, it opens with, um, you know, uh, a young man, all of this is extremely masculinist. It's always, you know, a young man, a boy, right. Sitting at home bored, uh, you know, lacking opportunity transported to outer space and other worlds, right. Science fiction here isn't necessarily, um, a means of shedding light directly on the world, right? It's not meant to represent the world. It's meant to represent some alternative, which will in turn uh, cultivate a critical consciousness on the world itself. Um, so I think, you know, I, I would suspect that they sort of view these genres as operating differently. Um, though ideologically, right, you could probably find clear parallels. Um, when it comes to them and Gramsci, I found very little evidence of them reading, uh, you know, anything that wasn't largely available in the United States. So, I mean, like Gramsci wasn't translated um, in English until much later. Um, I don't even know if they were aware of activities of the Communist Party in Italy um, or, you know, other countries. They were certainly aware of things happening in the Soviet Union, um, but they were sort of, you know, their political touchstones were, you know, the political touchstones of the American popular front generally. Um, so, you know, they were super into, you know, anti-during. They were, you know, reading New Masses and The Daily Worker. Um, theoretically, you know, those were, those were the sources of their, like, sort of theoretical insights, I would say. Um an interesting sort of side note to this is that they, they actually engage very little with science fiction published outside, you know, English speaking countries, right? There was no engagement with sort of Soviet science fiction, which is developing at the same time. Um, they were reading, you know, things published in the UK um, and things published in the US, primarily via pulp magazines, which would often reprint, um, you know, you know, British science fiction stories and novels and things like that. Um, in serial format, you know, you know, in the 1920s and 30s. Oh. I, hope I hope that, that answers, answers y'all's questions. questions. Yeah. 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 Thank you. Thank you, Sean. So did we do the second song with Mike Watt and the song Second Missing Men? Adam, Adam I, I can't, can't hear you. you. I, I can, can see, see that it looks, looks like you're talking, talking but, but I, I can't, can't hear you. you. Oh, you can't hear me? No, I can't hear Adam. We oh, did, now I can we did the song. We were about to ask the second pre-scripted question for Joe, okay. but then we okay. asked the other question. So now it's probably time to do that, unless somebody okay. wants to do something else. So I can I can go into the script then. So um, I'm hoping we can bring late 19th and earlier 20th century SF into this discussion, in particular some of your research, Joe, on figures like George Allen England, again, starting with a basic unpacking of what that writing was like, what it was about for our listeners, and contradictions, of course, of that writing as well. I'm going to talk a lot about, about one novel by George Allen England. Um, I'm going to try to make the case for George Allen England, I suppose. Um, uh, though he is a he is a problematic and um, uh, uh, not uncompromised uh, figure, um, <clears throat> uh, but I should say I should back up a little bit and say uh, before I kind of launch into my 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 um, uh, George Allen England stuff that I I am working on a book so I'm working on a book um, about uh, very late 19th and very early 20th century socialist fiction 
Um, so socialist and, and, and the novel in particular, right? Um, uh, so the socialist novel in the U.S. from the Haymarket Massacre of 1886 to the Russian Revolution. Um, and, and what motivates this is a, a sense that while there is a lot of great stuff on 1930s left literary culture, uh, and while there is some really fantastic stuff on left literary culture, right, um, uh, before the Russian Revolution in the U.S., there's just not as much. Uh, and we still don't know as much as we, as we, as we could, maybe should know, um, about, about um, uh, what we might call the sort of era of socialist literary culture in contradiction or in, in, in opposition to the, the sort of moment of communist literary culture, right? Um, and so that's, so, and, and, and so England, and so the book that I'm working on isn't, isn't really about sci-fi. Um, it's about this, the novel, uh, the socialist novel in, in the years between the, the Haymarket Massacre and the Russian Revolution. But England is a central figure in this book. Um, there will be a, a, a chapter devoted to England um, to the, the three socialist novels that he writes, um, really between 1913 and 1916. This is, these are like the peak years for England as a socialist writer. Um, but I'm going to talk today mostly about just one of these novels, um, a novel called The Air Trust, um, uh, which is, it's a, it's, a, it's a wild and kooky and bizarre and um, maybe terrible, um, maybe just downright bad um, book. Um, but it, 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 the book tried to be a massive literary event um, in U.S. socialist literary culture uh, at the moment of its publication. And I'll talk a little bit about what I mean by it tried to be a massive uh, uh, sort of event. Um, so uh, I want to say a few things about, about England himself, a, a figure I'm assuming not many of us <laughs> listening um, have, have heard of or, or read. Um, what I know about England comes from, uh, uh, England's biography comes from two sources, really. The first is Walter Rideout's The Radical Novel in the United States, 1900 to 1954, I think an oldie but goodie um, from the 1950s. Um, and uh, so that's one source. The other source is um, a, a scholarship by Mark Pittenger. Um, uh, an article he wrote um, on um, uh, England's novel. Really, it's a trilogy of three short novels uh, called Darkness and Dawn. Um, it's an article called uh, Imagining Genocide in the Progressive Era, the Social Science Fiction of George Allen England. Was published in American Studies in 1994, um, and then Pittenger also wrote a book um, on American socialism um, and ideologies of evolution um, that has a little bit on England. So this is where I, I sort of like where I know about England from because there's just so there's like very little, little written uh, about the guy. So Rideout tells us um, that he was an army chaplain's son um, who begins his career as an editor and freelance writer after graduating from Harvard. I think this matters. He, he's kind of at Harvard. Harvard shows up in a lot of his fiction. Um, uh, it seems to me that maybe all of his protagonists went to Harvard. I think that matters maybe for the class politics of the novels uh, in a couple of different ways. Um, uh, he graduates from Harvard, and then by 1912, uh, he's um, running for, for, for governor as a socialist candidate in the state of Maine, where I, I think he's essentially sort of living on his wife's family's farm, and doing his writing. Um, uh, he's, he's really influenced by Jack London. Um, the Iron Heel, if you know that novel from 1908, 
is is like sort of in it's a major ingredient in a lot of what he writes um especially the air trust the air trust is a sort of we might even say like a sequel to the iron heel uh in certain ways uh, or imagine itself as a sequel to uh to the iron heel um <coughs> excuse me um but he's a, he's a big figure in 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 social literary culture in the in the 19 teens in 1917 for instance he publishes he writes and publishes the story of the appeal which is uh, a history of Francis Wayland's socialist magazine, The Appeal to Reason, which is is maybe the biggest socialist magazine um, uh, of its moment, before, kind of um, in terms of circulation. Um, it pre-exists the masses, uh, right? Um, but, uh, uh, okay. Um, he contributes, England does, poetry and short fiction to mul- multiple socialist journals and magazines in the 19-teens, uh, including Wilshire's, um, out of out of you know California, as well as the short-lived New Review, which is a, 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 a kind of hardcore theoretical journal um, out of New York, where Louis Freyna, a famous figure uh, in, in the history of the transition from socialism to communism in the United States, um, is sort of uh, you know um, uh, writing quite a bit. Um, I, for a time, he was even a, a member of the advisory editorial council of the New Review along with Charlotte Perkins Gilman, while Floyd Dell, W.E.B. Du Bois, Max Easton, and Freyna were on the editorial board. So he's a minor player, but a player nonetheless, I think, in U.S. socialist literary culture in the 19-teens. Um, uh, so that's England, right? Um, and now a little bit more about the Air Trust in particular. And I, my apologies, but I'm going I'm to read a, quite a bit of stuff um, to kind of um, uh, puff the novel by way of, of its puffing. Uh, okay. Um, so, uh, uh, and it, it is, it is a, it is a kind of bonkers novel. Um, so the air trust was originally published in serial in 1915, uh, in the pages of a socialist magazine called the national ripsaw, uh, which was published, uh, in St. Louis. Um, and for, for me, I think maybe for Adam residents of Southern Illinois, right? Uh, St. Louis is not far away. This is kind of an exciting thing. Um, uh, The the size, the scope, the reach of the Ripsaw, I think also sort of speaks to the ways in which um, socialist publishing wasn't limited only to New York or Chicago in the, in the, in the first two decades of the, um, of the 20th century. Um, uh, So it was published first in the, in, in, in serial in the, in the pages of the socialist um, national Ripsaw, and I just want to mention, right, in the wake of the Ludlow Massacre, so the, Cal, you know, the Colorado mine wars, right, um, uh, at the outset of World War One, and, and the Ripsaw was a, a sort of anti-war um, uh, magazine, um, and uh, amidst serious tensions between the left and the center-right flanks of U.S. socialism, and maybe we can come back to those tensions uh, in our conversation later, um, the Ripsaw, it started out in 1903 as a tabloid uh, and a racist one at that. But by 1910, after a change in ownership, um, it is indeed a socialist magazine, although its pages remain littered with ads for assorted quack medicines and gadgets and, you know, buy the socialist's watch. This is the watch for socialists, you know, um, right kind of stuff. Um, so it's kind of, you know, here's a cure for your apnea so you can go to the factory and feel confident. It's a bit like bizarre, right? Uh, kind of stuff. Um, uh, uh, 
throughout the, the mid 19 teens monthly circulation of the of the ripsaw um was 150,000 um uh which to me is is kind of astounding uh, as a figure um uh it, so it, it it is it's one of the the biggest US socialist periodicals of its moment in 1914 perhaps the most prominent US socialist of the very early 20th century Eugene Debs joined the the National Ripsaw editorial team publishing frequent uh, editorials and articles in the magazine. Um, okay, and now back to the, the Air Trust. Um, uh, so the National Ripsaw advertised the Air Trust like crazy um, in its own pages, but also in the pages of other socialist magazines. You can find ads, for instance, uh, in the International Socialist Review, which is the kind of theoretical journal coming out of Chicago, edited by Charles Kerr and company. Um, Right. Um, and uh, and the ads themselves are 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 kind of a treat. There's a full page ad in the December 1914 issue of the Ripsaw uh, with this uh, blurb into the very heart of civilization that is being strangled by the princes of plunder and their war demons. George Allen England has hurled a bolt more terrific than belching cannons and bursting bombs. His story of the air trust will shake the very soul of the nation, right? Like that's the, you know, that's the, the, the advertising copy, right? Um, uh, in the January 1915 issue, um, in which we get the first installment, there's also a full page review attributed to Eugene Debs himself. And when I read this review, which I'm about to do for you, you might ask yourself, those of us who are familiar with Debs's writing, his tone, his style, whether or not Debs actually wrote this review. I'm not convinced that Debs did write this review. Um, and I have a little bit more to say about why I'm not convinced that Debs didn't write this review. Um, that goes beyond the sort of style of it. Um, uh, but it's a, it's a great introduction to the, um, to the plot um, uh, of the novel. Um, I will say, by the way, too, before I read the, the Debs review, um, or the, the review attributed to Debs, uh, that the novel would eventually be published by Philip Wagner, who is the, the publisher um, and owner of the Ripsaw, as a standalone volume, complete with a handful of illustrations by none other than John Sloan, the, the key figure in the Ashcan um, movement, right? So if you know Ashcan art, you can go, you know, right, you can go find some really early Ashcan. Um, uh uh, I happen to own a first edition of the Air Trust, and yes, it is indeed dedicated to Eugene Debs. Here's that dedication to Eugene V. Debs, comrade Gene, lover of all mankind and apostle of the world's emancipation. I dedicate this book. So as promised now, um, here is the Debs, um, the Debs, the supposed Debs review um, of the novel. Uh in the picturesque opening paragraph of the Air Trust by George Allen England, the first installment of which appears in the current Ripsaw, the reader is introduced to the world's commanding capitalist in 1921, who, in the delirium of his autocratic power, has conceived the seemingly impossible and irrational idea of monopolizing the air and making himself the absolute master of the world. Isaac Flint, true to his name, Hard, cold, soulless, and drunk with power is triumphant capitalism incarnate. The world is at his feet, humanity at his mercy, 
the Lord of life and death is he. The world's workshops and its skyscrapers, its industries and its bank vaults, its ships and their cargoes are all his. At his command, industry halts. Mills and mines are empty, the workers idle, and their children breadless. He is but to press a button, and with the alacrity of a menial, the government does his bidding. Courts, colleges, and churches are all subservient to his power, and when he issues the order, judges, priests, and professors turn strike-breakers, and armies move like automatons to execute his autocratic will. And yet his consuming thirst for wealth and power is not quenched. In his gluttonous passion to make his mastery of mankind complete, he yields to find, uh, he yearns to find the windpipe of the race, and literally seize and hold in his relentless grasp the throat of the world. And so Isaac Flint, plutocracy's reigning billionaire in 1921, leaving Monte Cristo far in the shade, soliloquizes with satanic cruelty in his gilded den. Breath, said he, breath is life. Without food and drink and shelter, men can live a while even without water for some hours, but without air they die, inevitably and at once, and if I make the air my own, then I am master of all life. Air, he cried exultantly, an air trust by God in heaven, it can be, it will be, and it must be. The die is cast, the air trust, the trust of trusts, the crown and climax of capitalism was now in sight, for whatever the imperious old billionaire conceived and projected, however insane or monstrous it might appear, simply had to be executed. From now on, the plot becomes more and more startling and the developments more and more thrilling. Wonderful and still more wonderful, each page throbs more intensely with the recital of these climacteric events. The world of capitalism rushes blindly to its doom and the, and the dramatic splendor of this epic matches the cosmic glory of the, cat, of the catastrophe. The Air Trust is the boldest and most brilliant piece of fiction of our time. Every page bears the impress of a mastermind its meteoric flights of the imagination baffle description, while the cadence of its finished rhythmic periods is like the music of falling waters. And I'll pause for a second and say, none of that is true, right? Like none of that last couple of sentences that I read is that, that is not like, that is not true. Um, but let me continue. Uh, the author's knowledge of physics, chemistry, aeronautics, mechanics, technology, and other sciences is simply marvelous. And all this knowledge is freely at the service of the enslaved millions, whose cause has here a champion dowered by the gods themselves to fire them to revolt and blaze their way to emancipation. You, dear reader, you, dear reader may protest that the very idea of an air trust is too absurd and that you cannot waste your time upon a thing so palpably impossible. But hark a moment. Are you absolutely sure? Are there not a thousand monuments erected to the impossible all along the highways of human achievement? Who dare say today that even the air trust is among the impossibilities? It is indeed a staggering proposition, but before you pronounce your verdict and read England's matchless novel revealing the plot to cap the climax of trustification under the capitalist system by securing control of the atmosphere, the supreme necessity of life, and thus consummating the conspiracy to perpetually enslave the toiling millions of mankind. If you are a socialist, you will follow with the keenest zest this vivid, this vivid and logical development of the plot of the plutocracy to completely shackle the working class. If you are a non-socialist or even an anti-socialist, you will be thrilled with the recital of this masterly epic of the social revolution. The characters here developed in this marvelous drama are so true to life that we shudder with dread, dread or thrill with rapture, rapture as they pass in review. George Allen England has given us the, the supreme story of the supreme struggle. So, um, 
so that's so you know thank you for for bearing with me with that review i find it um or preview uh again sort of astounding amazing um fantastic uh on a number of levels um uh and and especially its attribution to depths um because one of the things um uh, and, and certainly the novel, the novel, it like has these sort of like, uh, you know, kind of grandiose moments of speechifying about the evils of capitalism um, uh, and the wonders and glories um, uh, of, of coming socialism. Right. I mean, this is right. And it kind of it, it invites us to kind of think of of history in terms of class struggle. Right. Um, and it's rhetorically keyed to um, uh, uh, to to that that theory of history. Right. But at the same time, um, it's a novel that it seems to me um, contradicts um, Debs's ideas of the self-emancipation of the working class. Um, and and so I, I, I guess I could I could talk a little bit to, to that if we have time for me to talk about that or we could we can kind of talk about that in discussion. Um, hosts, should I should I keep going or should I? Um, should I cut myself off here? Um, either way is fine. Um, you know, m- my follow-up on this was going to tie it back a little bit to this idea of science fiction as, as Marxism is sort of being a science fiction um, that we talked about when we were talking about the, the Michaelist, a sort of social social imagination against capitalism, right? Like, which does bring up exactly what you're bringing up now, like, you know, it brings up Brechtian estrangement and also Darko Subin's application of a Brechtian estrangement mm-hmm. to science fiction, right? The idea of cognitive yeah. estrangement, but also China Mieville's criticism of uh, Darko Subin, um, that the agent in some of these science, these critical science fiction stories isn't so much the working class, but like the personification of science, capital S, the engineer and that kind of thing. And so... The Air Trust, I think, really echoes the sort of anti-capitalist imaginary, even more so now in some ways that the planet faces existential crisis with climate change. Who is the subject, right, um, in the Air Trust that solves the problem um, of the Air Trust? It's sort of the engineer, right? It's sort of what liberal capitalists tell us who is going to solve climate change now is somebody who comes up with carbon capture, that kind of thing. So I think yeah. where you're going is what I wanted to ask about, but I don't know, Laura or Sean, if you have something else. My, my answer to your question um, uh, I, turns on the idea of vanguardism, I think, right? Um, and and the, way, the ways in which this, this novel in particular is, is guilty of a particular vanguardist imagine, uh, imagination. Uh, so I'll put, uh, it, so that I'll put it that way. Before, right? I, before I even kind of talk about the, the vanguardism built into the plot of the novel, and I think also built into its particular version of cognitive estrangement um, or, or um, supposed rationality. I do want to sort of say something about the, the, the relationship between the novel and um, uh, climate catastrophe. <laughs> um, at the very beginning of the novel, so Isaac Flint, the, 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 uh, uh, like the, the plutocrat of plutocrats, right, who is a sort of He's like a um, Rockefeller on steroids, right? Like, so we're, we're six years into the future and he's basically the president of a trust of trusts, right? Okay. 
and he sets this, uh, he sets an engineer to work, um, to figure out the process by which he can extract oxygen from the air so that he can commodify it, right, and sell it back. And along the way, um, the the engineer is like, oh, you know, a byproduct of this of this process is basically abundant nitrogen. Um, like we would have, like we could just fertilize, like, at, we, like actually, what I what I've really discovered is like food for all. Um, you know, at a, at a, at a much lower, we might say, um, sort of ecological cost. Right. Um, and Isaac Flint is like, uh, yeah, no, no, I'm not interested in that at all. Of course. Right. Give me the, give me the oxygen. But so there's this moment, the novel, the novel kind of does imagine the possibility of, well, if right, the socialists were in charge of the right, like, right of the factory, what they'd be figuring out is, um, the abundant nitrogen, not the commodification of, um, uh, right. Um, uh, of the oxygen. Okay, so there's it's kind of kind of fascinating um, uh, stuff there. Um, but back to the vanguardism. Um, so number one, the novel the novel really does um, invite you to believe that the future it, it imagines is in fact a sort of logical development of the present, um, a sort of inevitable, necessary sort of development of the present. Um, that's the kind of first thing I want to say, uh, right, um, about about the way that it's sort of imagining a, a, a future six years from now. OK. Um, and it's one in which capital is really, you know, is even more powerful than capital is in 1915. Right. So that's the the, the, the kind of first thing we might say. But the second thing is this, that the the in so doing this uh, in so insofar as it, it sort of um, uh, invites you to imagine the, the future that it does, the air trust also imagines the necessity of, we might even say relishes, takes pleasure in, invites its readers to take pleasure in, uh, a particular set of revolutionary tactics, tactics that Debs himself had critiqued. So in 1913, um, Debs in the International Socialist Review, he says, I'm opposed to any tactics which involve stealth, secrecy, intrigue, and necessitate acts of individual violence for their execution. The work of socialists must uh, must all be done out in the broad open light of day. Nothing can be done by stealth that can be of any advantage to it in this country. Uh, the workers can be emancipated only by their own collective will. The power inherent in themselves as a class and the collective will and conquering power can only be the result of education, enlightenment, and self-imposed discipline. Uh, for Debs, this is sort of the combination of industrial unionism and voting the socialist ticket, right? Um, uh, okay. Um, but in the air trust, in the future that it imagines for us, revolutionaries and a small band of revolutionaries are forced, because of how powerful capital in this imagined future is, to engage in exactly stealth, secrecy, intrigue, and violence. Uh, they bomb via airplane the air trust's oxygen mining mega factory just before the factory is ready to get up and running, uh, and they they kill in the process. I mean, there's a it's a it's a war that sort of breaks out between a sort of a small vanguard army. Um, and the sort of guards of the air trust factory. Um, and, uh, it, it, the, the novel's protagonist, Gabriel Armstrong tells us that the novel's final conflict is a war of extermination, right? So there's this, it's like really bloody, right? Sort of end to the novel. Um, uh, but, but, but second, um, the, the air trust really doesn't focus on working class self-emancipation exactly. Um, is Gabriel Armstrong um, 
the protagonist, the socialist protagonist of the novel, really a worker? Sort of yes and no. We don't really get any backstory on the guy at all. But if you know England's other novels, you kind of need to know that he's a Harvard-trained engineer who's sort of thrown his lot in with, um, with socialism, right? Um, he, his Pinkerton file um, tells us that his, his occupation is expert electrical and chemical worker, uh, a socialist and labor agitator of the most dangerous type because intellectual and well-read. Um, he's, he's just like all of England's other socialist heroes who are always engineers, always educated, always six foot two, always muscular, always masculine, always incredibly handsome, always, you know, right, like this sort of ideal um, sort of version of manhood, I suppose we might say. Um, uh, uh, he's, in, but, but more than this, he's, he's also, he's just a, he's a professional revolutionary, is Gabriel Armstrong. Um, uh, and... Um, his number one comrade and love interest happens to be the daughter of the president of the Air Trust, who Gabriel Armstrong con converts to socialism. And this is itself telling. We never see like a sort of quote unquote common worker convert to socialism through struggle. We see the daughter of the richest man in the world, right, converted to socialism via the speechifying of a Harvard graduate who has converted to socialism, <laughs> right? Um, and and, it, and it's a, right, so this is, uh, um, and while the novel insists that the number of socialists in the, in the U.S. in its imagined sort of dystopian future um, in, in 1925 is where we are at the end of the novel has grown tremendously, the socialist movement is nonetheless flat on its back. Uh, we're in the world of the plutocracy of the kind of fascism imagined by Jack London in the Iron Heel in 1908, and England's novel tips, you know, tips its hat to London's novel explicitly. Right. I mean, characters talk about Jack London's novel and say we're in Jack London's novel, <laughs> um, basically. Um, and um, uh, so if so, so so what we get by the end of the novel is a situation which, uh, according to which, if Gabriel Armstrong's small underground group um, uh, doesn't bomb the, the air trust factory, capital will rule forever. Um, the, the, the completion of the factory securing absolute, you know, total dominion, uh, domination. But in bombing the factory, the small underground group not only kills Flint, right, the, the president of the Trust of Trusts, um, and destabilizes capital's rule, uh, it also re-inspires the otherwise defeated multitude. So the novel ends with Armstrong's vision of the multitude realizing the dream of socialism, but, right, like, it's because they have, because the vanguard has, right, um, has, has, has been the spark for them. Um, that's the spark is the, the metaphor that the novel itself uses. So, so on balance, we kind of get a version of propaganda of the deed um, as, the, as the focus becomes, right, the, the heroics of, a, of an underground vanguard, mm -hmm. um, 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 less than the collective will and power of the working class as such. So like there are strikes mentioned throughout the novel, like the Lud like the Ludlow situation, right? Um, but it's always the strikes are always defeat. They just spell they just mean defeat. Um, uh, anyway, I'll stop there. I saw I saw some. It seems like there was a question. I think actually it's we need to transition um, and unpack more of this in, in the second half. I'm sorry to have to be the one to look at the time. Um, but so Laura, why don't you kick off the the first part of the next. Uh, phase of the discussion 
after we do the the two uh, script things we need to do to wrap up the first half, is that okay? Yeah, that's fine. Um, just a second. Uh, am I unmuted? Yeah, okay. Um, what about the blurb about uh, Melissa Carper in Arkansas Bound? Do you want me to read that or no? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's yeah. Is that what you're I'm referring to? Tish doing that, and then I'll do okay. after the after the uh, interview we'll splice in the other interview i'll uh, wrap it up and then we'll start off with you uh and well, we'll start off with the opening music and then your, your whatever question you want to follow up and then i think try to like try to cross pollinate the discussion between the michaelists and the air trust to unpack some sure. does that sound good with everybody yeah yeah i think so i think i understand what's going on all right um and you're one up on me i, I got like four hours sleep so <laughs> Yeah, I know what you mean. All right, so um, it is time for another musical break uh, with another song from Melissa Carper, Arkansas Bound. Again, you can find their work at melissacarper.bandcamp.com. Follow the mu- following the music, we will from, hear some, from of the some of the organizers care on the-, on the project to help relocate trans and queer persons displaced by repression across large swaths of this country. Packing up my picket, leaving town, leaving town. Packing up my picket, Arkansas bound, Arkansas bound. I'm leaving this city, Arkansas bound, Arkansas bound. Oh, I'm leaving this city, Arkansas bound, Arkansas bound.
As of this, As interview, of this around interview, around 500 anti-trans bills have been introduced in state houses across the country, with dozens passing this year alone. This has been fed by an orchestrated hysteria about queer grooming and a manufactured moral panic with echoes of medieval anti-Semitic blood libel and the 1980s satanic panic, the more recent QAnon adrenochrome conspiracy theory, and even echoes of the late medieval early modern witch hunts that resulted in the deaths of tens of thousands or more women. These attacks, of course, also echo, echo the boilerplate homophobia of the pre-Stonewall era. At the same time, there's an increasingly fascist character to much of the current transphobic political pogrom, as it is the cutting edge of an escalating overall assault on civil rights, voting rights, and even child labor laws. As Aaron Reed reports on, the rec on a recent study from Data for Progress, 8% of trans persons in the U.S. have already been forced to move out of their community or state due to anti-LGBTQ plus legislation and regulations. 43% are actively considering moving. If transgender people are between 0.5 and 1% of the U.S. population, as estimated, that would mean, Reed writes, between 130 to 260,000 people have already been forced to become gender refugees, and that number could climb by hundreds of thousands in the coming months. Proposed and passed state laws and regulations ban or restrict, or would ban or restrict, gender-affirming health care for minors and even adults, increasingly pathologize transgender persons, creating conditions in some states where queer and trans people could be deprived of liberty without any substantive due process. Increasing restrictions on being trans in public, criminalizing or institutionalizing biases in family court against gender-affirming parents, for example, in custody battles, and more. Trans folks in places like Texas and Florida face the prospect of simply going to work or having dinner in public may be a criminal offense. The Carbondale Assembly on Radical Equity, or CARE, was formed in early 2023 in Carbondale, Illinois, as a multi-tendency coalition to coordinate organizing and action by the different activists, organizers, and leftists in the town. One of the things that CARE is focused on is gender refugees relocating to Carbondale. Carbondale is, to borrow from mainstream parlance, the bluest town in the southernmost tip of a blue state, jutting into increasingly hostile territory. A fact that has also led to the relocation from, quote, red states of gender affirming and reproductive care, including abortion clinics, to the city. Carbondale is a town of about 25,000 people. The main employers are Southern Illinois University, historically a campus that tended to serve first-generation students and students from working-class families, and Southern Illinois Healthcare, each employing about 7,000 people. Carbondale is surrounded by the Shawnee National Forest in the Ozark foothills of Southern Illinois, and the town is known for, amongst other things, a long tradition of DIY punk and uh, DIY music and punk houses. Southern Illinois has a contested but rich history of social struggle and organizing, including the formulation of a local chapter of the Black Panther Party for self-defense in the long 1960s, a massive student strike and rebellion in 1970, militant minor unions, the uh, the long civil rights struggle in Cairo, Illinois, I always mispronounce that, a faculty and student strike in the university uh, in 2011 that dovetailed with the Occupy movement, environmentalist direct actions against clear-cutting in the Shawnee Forest, and anti-Klan organizing by immigrants in the early 20th century. But it's also a region with a long and sordid history of sundown towns and lynchings, particularly outside of Carbondale. We have two of the organizers from CARE with us today to discuss what led to the forming of CARE, the mutual aid it facilitates, how to, other people could start projects similar to the CARE projects in other relatively safe towns and areas, 
and how folks can reach out to CARE if they need help relocating, and also how folks can support the work CARE is doing and touch base on what needs to happen to fight this increasingly fascist onslaught against trans and queer persons. Our guests include Cassandra, a 40-year-old trans feminine non-binary anarcho-communist redneck from Kentucky who has spent the past several years involved in queer liberation action and grassroots organization for causes that promote equity, emancipation, and challenge unjust authority. Her pronouns are she, her, and they, them. Maddie Stearns is a non-binary libertarian socialist, J20 defendant, organizing in Carbondale for about 10 years, also a lifelong resident of Carbondale, and they are going to school to become what they call a venture socialist, and they are a general troublemaker. Welcome to Locust Ray. How are y'all doing today? I'm doing good. Doing good. Uh, so I was wondering uh, if you could uh, tell us what CARE is and how it got started, and maybe how each of you as individuals came to do the work and how CARE came to focus, at least for now, on solidarity with trans and queer persons being forced to relocate. So like the focus and the start sort of came hand in hand. Um, I was sort of looking around and just seeing all the sort of laws getting passed and feeling a little lost kind of in my space here in Carbondale on what, what, what could be done about it. And so I started reaching out to friends, started reaching out to loved ones and talking and just, you know, came to the conclusion we just needed to meet up and have like a more assembly kind of nature of it. But in that process, there was also this realization that like, for some of us, this was like the third time we had done this in town for various different subjects. And so the hope was to create an assembly that could be more standing, more open to essentially what is the broad coalition in Carbonell. There's just not a lot of us. So we have to kind of usually work across um, political ideologies um, if we're going to get anything done. And so the hope was to create as you said, a multi-tendency leftist sort of assembly um, to allow this space um, for us to work on things. The major focus, of course, right now, and what sort of started the initiation was um, the concerns of, you know, trans refugees and oppressive, you know, fascist states. And around the same time that Maddie was doing that, I started putting out feelers and like trying to find people who were willing to perhaps put our collective skills, because as they said, we've done this a few times before for different issues. And I remember I was talking about it in a place on social media and then Maddie and myself and another person started talking about it in the comments of that post. And Within a couple of weeks, we were having the first like kind of get together write up meetings to decide kind of like what we were going to put forth. Now, so far, the biggest focus of that has been like the trans refugee relocation stuff. Like, you know, trying to help people get out of these hostile fascist states and like get them up here. But like I see this like being kind of the platform by which like we're all kind of always working together on different things. And this is just kind of a way that we can do it so like right now we are definitely working on the uh, trans issue and we're making strides with that but like the idea is not all of us are politically aligned in the same spot like we're all on the like same quadrant but we're not always you know in the same area of that quadrant so you know getting us all to 
work as a cohort rather than just saying, hey, y'all should come with me a little further to the communist side might not be the best way of organizing. So like we're doing this whole everybody in one pot kind of thing. On it, um, it was it's sort of based off of like um, approaches I've seen in other bigger cities where they've tried to, instead of like, continue this infighting trend unfortunately that seems to happen on the left um they were really leaning into like let's just focus down on the work at hand we agree for probably about 90 percent of things what we should do in our current moment in our current political environment and so arguing about the 10 percent is pointless at this point point. and in fact continuing to argue about the 10 percent is counter-revolutionary and so these were part of the conversations that we like started with that like have helped to guide us as we keep, you know, leaning into figuring it all out. And uh, I think it's really, really beautiful. Specifically on, on the thing about facilitating solidarity with trans and queer persons being displaced, what kind of mutual aid does uh, care try to facilitate? And like, you know, roughly like how many folks has care been in contact with who are trying to leave dangerous states and areas. So one of the big things that we're doing right now in terms of solidarity is we're fostering a conversation. Like we have welcome threads for each person that we talk to after a certain point. And that's where we figure out what the need is, what people are going through, what their struggle is. And then we try to collaborate with them in order to solve those problems, which is why whenever I'm talking about care, specifically about the things that I do, I talk about how we provide logistical support because not everybody has the means or the executive function or the wherewithal to really navigate some of the like process of moving, especially in the capitalist hell where we live in, where sadly it just takes money to make these things happen. But as far as who we're reaching out to, um, right now um, I'm currently talking to six people. Um, and that number goes up and goes down depending on things. Most of the people that I've talked to have the means to just come here on their own. So they're like, oh, okay, Carbondale's safe. Well, I'll transfer to SIU Carbondale. Or, okay, Carbondale's safe. I'll start looking at houses in the area. But not everybody has those resources. And when somebody is lacking in either resources or an ability to come together with, like, how to get a job, how to get an apartment, one of the hurdles we ran into is a lot of landlords around here don't even want to like, you know, talk about a rental agreement until you can show up to look at the house. So like we've been looking at setting up transitional housing. We've been looking up uh, ways that we can help people get into jobs. Uh, we have a team of community health workers that can help people once they get here. And it's really just a matter of doing what we would be doing if somebody in our hometown had these issues and being like, okay, cool. Let's see what we can do about getting you here. And then let's see what we can do about helping you once you get here. And like, because that's kind of where I'm at on it. It's like, you know, I don't have a lot of resources or ability to like, you know, to say here, take this. So it's a bunch of us collaborating, crowdsourcing, crowdfunding sometimes, and just like trying to engage in like that old school mutual aid with people who are stuck in these states where you're not as likely to get a job that pays enough that you can just move to Carbondale from Florida. If you're already trans and dealing with discrimination, you're not going to, especially for trans people of color, especially for visibly trans people like myself who don't pass for the cis heteronormative, like, you know, male gaze aesthetic. Um, 
it's a little harder to find like the resources necessary in order to like live comfortably in this society. So it's just like, you know, we try to figure out best case scenario, what we can do to get people here and then make sure that they have a life when they get here. But most importantly, like it's through building relationships with these people instead of just being like, Hey, this is what we're doing. This is what's here. Come on down. We try to like, you know, talk and get to know. Kind of on that same note, this has like re-sparked a lot of the conversations and projects around food autonomy and cooperative housing that have been trying to get off the ground in Carbondale. And so, um, you know, that's actually been really nice because like um, the ideas of mutual aid are ongoing consistently, you know, and um, we're, we're trying to get, you know, these things back going again, um, you know, uh, and there's there's like this new energy because I think people are starting to really see the playbook kind of coming to off the right. The um, the connecting points that a lot of us have been pointing out for many years are starting to become very apparent and very public. And um, I think uh, a lot of people have a lot of energy now to figure out like, oh, how do we address like, you know, what is systemic houselessness? How do we address, you know, systemic uh, food insecurity? Because like moving people to Carbondale would be really easy if we already had, you know, a food network, we already had these kind of uh, systems in place. And so that's been really encouraging in some of my conversations around mutual aid and helping people. And, uh, but yeah, like uh, Cass said, we mostly um, just are providing connection and um, community, you know, that's uh, people have already mentioned how welcoming uh, we've been to uh, just answer all sorts of questions. I've been in a couple of the welcoming committees uh, threads and, uh, yeah, people are really thankful that we're just here, you know, to at least like offer someone to talk to sometimes about this stuff. And that's been really positive. If one of our listeners uh, sort of found themselves in what they felt like was a relatively safe place, you know, they felt like their town was kind of similar to Carbondale and they wanted to start something like uh, CARES Trans Solidarity Project, what would you, what would you suggest to them? What pieces of advice or suggestions would you have for them? I'd recommend talking to their friends and figuring out if they could find other people who kind of share that goal and then get an inventory of their skills and the resources they have access to, and then sit down and write out what they're going to do, what their intention is, and then meet intentionally and invite other people to meet intentionally under that goal. We didn't do anything particularly special. It was just a bunch of local yokels who got together and decided, hey, this bad thing is happening. Let's see what we can do to make it better for people. If you're in a town that is safe-ish for like trans and queer people, and you think that people who are in Florida or Texas or Mississippi or Tennessee or basically 32 different states right now where these laws are happening, then yeah, just sit down with your friends and just figure out what you can do because it has been our experience thus far in the community of Carbondale that once we said, hey, we're working on this and this is what we're trying to do, that people in the community would come forward and be like, yeah, we want to help with that too. So just standing up and saying something and getting people to sit with you is definitely that first step. Also, if you are in one of these states, um, there are... uh networks forming and everywhere to provide defense and protection and still create safe spaces for queer youth and queer uh, adults who 
um, don't maybe have the privilege of moving, maybe also think that they don't shouldn't have to and want to dig in. And so there are um, there are lots of things that can be done uh, in those states too to uh, um, provide solidarity, to provide help and assistance to people. And um, but all that is still based on exactly what Cass said: built talking to your friends, building relationships, meeting intentionally with purpose to do the work, you know. Um, and um, the only other thing is you know, make, make sure you're known, um, like get out there, start letting people know like, Hey, we're here. You're not alone. Um, there are people out there who want to help you, you know, that's, I think that's a really important point. Cause there's people who are going to want to stay and fight and there's people who won't be able to leave. Mm-hmm. Um, but for folks who, uh, don't feel like they can stay and fight and want to try to leave, if they wanted to get a hold of care, how, how would they do that? So first and foremost, uh, there is Carbondale Care at Proton.me. That's uh, C-A-R-B-O-N-D-A-L-E-C-A-R-E at Proton.me. And that's our main email address that we use. Then you can find us at Facebook under the Carbondale Assembly for Radical Equity or on Instagram as Carbondale Cares. And those are the best ways to reach out to us. The other thing is uh, you can just find me anywhere on social media. I go by the name MX Cassandra, and that's how I do most of the outreach. If, if anyone wants to support CARES work with a donation, how how could they go about doing that? Obviously, there are like local events going on here that are helping to support CARE, but we also we want we want people outside of Southern Illinois to show solidarity and, and aid if they, if they can. How could they do that? Well, um, there's Cash App, and uh, right now... Um, we have a relationship with Rainbow Cafe, which is a queer resource center here in Carbondale, and they've set up a bank account for care. And we can do Cash App uh, at uh, the Cash App tag uh, Rainbow Cafe LGBTQ, and then put care in the memo for any direct donations. Or um, you can write a check to Rainbow Cafe proper and mail it to uh, 118. Uh, North Illinois Avenue in Carbondale, 62901, and in the memo line for that right care. And that's how people outside of town can do it. We're currently working on better options, but we've only been doing this for a few months now. About what all more do y'all think it needs to happen, understanding again that CARE is a multi-tenancy grassroots organization with lots of different points of view to fight this current wave of attacks on trans rights, civil rights, labor rights, and even perfunctory democratic norms that is happening across as y'all said, 32 different states around the country um, as part of an overall concerted, I believe, far-right tending towards fascist effort. Um, Just spread out your tactics. Like, I think there's this old playbook that a lot of people fall back to, which has, you know, um, sort of almost now tropey kind of ways of protesting or ways of getting, like, attention or organizing and just... um, I think rethinking some of that, spreading out what you think you can do or what you think is possibly even helpful is really beneficial into developing a sense of challenging um, power, challenging the systems of power that we face because um, it's not just like there's one problem we have to face. Like the, the infection of capitalism has gotten everywhere. The infection of surveillance has gotten everywhere. And... Um, so any activity that can challenge 
that in any sphere, I think is really important. Um, and they all, they all sort of overlap, you know, like you said, it's, it's civil rights, it's trans rights, you know, queer rights. It's, uh, just the, the rights of humans to be able to live autonomously, the, you know, um, they're, they're all interconnected and they often usually have the same sort of, uh, approaches of help, you know, solidarity, mutual aid and, uh, resistance. And so just think about what, what, how can you be a revolutionary artist? How could you be a revolutionary seamstress? You know, uh, there's all sorts of cool things out there. Um, also, yeah, make sure to keep talking to people, find your friends, uh, and, uh, get over the BS, get over the, you know, the politics of it all and try to focus in on the work, try to focus in on the things that we all know need to get done. You know, it's really easy to say, Hey, how do we start a garden? Hey, how do we, you know, um, get money together to move someone, um, or help them set up into temporary housing. You know, these are, these are things they're, they're pretty easy. And sometimes they don't look super revolutionary either. And that's, that's also super okay. You know, um, one of the things I've had to get over is like being in meetings and feeling like, ah, this just feels like I'm in an NGO or it feels like I'm in just like some sort of standard, you know, like, I don't know, kind of meeting, but like, the work is still happening in a beautiful way. And so that's, that's me though. I just got to get over it. Right. Like, and I don't know, I feel like I'm rambling and I'm going to stop. To follow up on what Maddie said, I want to like really stress that first off the people who are passing these anti-trans laws are most certainly fascists. Like there was a leaked set of emails from a couple of months ago that showed a group of far right wing authoritarian ultranationalist people that were conspiring to push these laws as part of an agenda to not just dismantle trans rights and gay rights, but also attack women's rights, black rights, uh, you know, Latina rights, uh, so on and so forth. It's all about scaling back the last 80 years of civil rights laws to go back to a white, patriarchal, cis-heteronormative, Christo-fascist norm. And as this is going on, they are trying to use policy and procedure and bureaucracy in order to make these things happen because those things are boring. So my advice to literally anyone listening to this is to engage in what I like to call, what everyone likes to call, malicious compliance and show up to these meetings and be annoying. Don't be rude. Don't be mean. Don't get thrown out. Be annoying. If you've ever watched uh, What We Do in the Shadows, be Colin. Be a psychic vampire in these meetings. Take it up their time, take up their energy, and make it to where they can't get anything done. And more importantly, uh, whenever it comes to organizing, remember that it's not all sexy direct action and being out there and raging against the machine. What any sustained movement needs is people who can make sandwiches, make copies, send a fax, and do the dishes. Any movement that is going to be worth its weight is going to have a hundred people in the background doing the work that needs to be done to make these things happen for every one person that's out there saying stuff on podcasts like this. Me and Maddie are organizers for care in the sense that we are one of many people who are doing this, who may not be like, you know, saying something right now, but like, this is a community and any movement that is going to stand sustained in action must be a community built on relationships, not charismatic leaders built under the premise that we are all here for this reason. And this is what we're going to do because all of these fights are intersectional. 
fighting police violence, fighting capitalism, fighting wage theft, fighting anti-union measures, all of it is stopping the encroach of fascism because they've been coming at us from all these angles. They've been infecting and infesting all of these areas of society and government life. And it's time for us to say no and to be annoying about it because that's, that's our superpower. You can get enough people together and be like, no, I don't like this. Please stop. And, you know, you can do more if you'd like, but that just by itself puts such a wedge in the thing because then they can't say, oh, nobody's giving us any problems. If you've got a thousand people outside the door saying, no, stop doing this, it's a little harder to paint the narrative that people support you. Because I'd like to point out these people are still a minority in our country, and they're trying to take control by silencing anybody who would point out that they're, in fact, not the majority. Really important. I think a lot of, obviously, care has people from all sorts of different political points of view, but um, for those of us who are like anarchists or communists or left-wing socialists, maybe we have dreams in our minds about like, you know, the oppressed exploited, storming the Bastille or the Winter Palace or taking over Barcelona and stuff like that. But sometimes those dreams can get gutted of their actual substance and become these abstract things when what really matters is the day-to-day actual organizing, right, with real people around you, um, which is a thousand times more important than uh, having another argument about something like Kronstadt or something. And the work CARE is doing, the work that the, the Starbucks workers are doing, and the, and the work that, you know, the people uh, um, did like last year around solidarity with reproductive rights and so on is building the networks of people who can actually fight these fascists, right? Um, in the here and now, not in some heaven. Something that like, I don't know, I've been like really dwelling on, I think it's like also important to realize is that like, like like we said, we, we probably know the 90% of the work that we need to do now. And like you were talking about, these sort of ideal situations that maybe our political ideology may get to down the road are, are probably just never going to get reached. And if we ever made 10% of progress towards those goals, the landscape would be so completely changed that those goals will look completely different. And so focusing on those as some sort of like ideals and utopias is interesting, but I think it really needs to like just kind of go away and like we need to reground ourselves in the now and the exact moment of exactly what we need to do. And yeah, like just stop with a lot of the, Oh, but I hope, you know, like what if, what if the government can do this? Or what if it's just like a fractual federation of communes? Oh my God, it's so silly. I don't like it. <laughs> it's like, I don't know. I mean, yeah, like the 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 images of the past are, are great, but uh, only only as like fuel to to get to the ones of now, right? Like, anyway. People who organized the uh, uh, fight of the, uh, the racist the racist cops in the 1930s in Harlem were organizing for 20 or 30 years before they had victories. Right. You know, people who organized took the anarchists who took over Barcelona had been organizing workers for decades mm-hmm. before that actually happened, in the, in the actual day in and day out um, of talking to actual human beings around them and organizing them. If I were to say anything else, I would just say, if you're listening to this and you feel like you're in an unsafe area and you need to get out, please reach out to us. One of the people that I'm talking to right now is in Idaho. It doesn't matter if you're on the other side of the country. 
even if we can't connect you here, we will try to connect you with people we know around the country because all of us will, most of us have, you know, traveled the country and know people in other areas and know people in other crews and we can try to make that happen. So like, yeah, if you are concerned and you think that it's time to go, please reach out. That's almost it for the first free half of the show. The second half of the show has been kidnapped by monetization. To get the second half, become a Locust Review patron. You can find out how at locustreview.com. Our closing music will be Omnia Soul's Human Plus. You can, as always, find their work at omniasoulart, uh, bandcamp.com. Okay. Thanks, everybody. I'm going to um, create a new link to reset the timer, and I'll send that all to you immediately. I'm first going to download um, this recording so that we have this part ready, uh, all set.
Thank you for listening to part one of Locus Radio. Part two is being held ransom by a machine entity whose masters no longer remember how to control it. To liberate it and get another full hour of Locus Radio, go to patreon.com slash Review and subscribe for $5 a month or more. Locus Radio is hosted by Tish and Adam Turrell and Laura Fair Schultz. It's produced by Omnia Soul and Alexander Billet, with music by Omnia Soul.